Bonjour, hola, hallo, ciao, hola, namaste, salam, zidras, uran, yong hatsio, merhaba, sein benen yo, salamata, be, zia, mahaba, konnichiwa, jumbo, ni hao, ne ho, and good afternoon, good evening. I hope I've covered all of our listeners there. I don't have any closed caption ones for you, deaf listeners. <laughs> but we'll put that up after we finally get on YouTube, which is coming this next week. Big announcement. Welcome to the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, The Way It Is, episode 17, the 17th of July, 1717. Big numbers for those of you out playing the lottery, especially with a moon and Jupiter trine coming up with Saturn. So beware, don't borrow the money to bet. But if you've got it, put those numbers down with your lucky number. That's what Mystic Medusa would say. Anyway, this is our first lie of the day because really it isn't the 17th. I'm pre-recording this portion. Why? Because my office, the Den of Iniquity, is getting wallpapered this week. So everything, the guitars, the drums, all the computers, the electronics, meth lab, um, you know, decoding devices, um, Sanskrit machine, um, telex, fax, and all my encoding and cryptonic devices are being taken out of the office. And an amazing wallpaperer, the, the wallpaper to the stars, Walter K., the wallpaperer of the block, is actually putting up the wallpaper in my office here. And uh, it's actually called Snow Leopard. And my office will look like I'm surrounded by snow leopards. It's kind of furry, glittery, wild, very acidic wallpaper. Can't wait to show it to you in the show notes. So this portion is being pre-recorded so that I don't stress out and try and get it all done on Friday morning. Now... This is also a rant-free podcast. This, it's all going to be goodness and light. Now, we may throw in a few politics or things like that, but it's all going to be on the positivity. I have actually come to the conclusion with some input that I, of course, I always do pitch and preach, and we know I preach too much, preach positivity and looking for the light and being nice. But I have found myself going to the dark side a few times, things that have really, I hate to use the word trigger, because trigger is a weakness. The things that have activated some uh, anger in me have made me more angry than looking at the positive side of things. So uh, you're only going to get light today. I might report on the darkness, but I won't be going there. I won't be going to the darkness. So those of you that, you know, like to hear the darkness, uh, it's being temporarily postponed. You still get the facts. You still get them the way I see them. You still get it the way it is. Unfiltered. No fake news here. But it's just being reframed. So we like that positivity. Because we do want positivity. We do want peace. And we know one of the ways to achieve peace is to eliminate the left completely. So um, on that note... On that satiric, lovely note. Uh, no, we can't eliminate the left because then we wouldn't have balance. And without balance, we wouldn't have the universe. And without the universe, 
what would we have? We'd have a parallel universe, a parallel universe, one where people take holidays and uh, get to dress up and go out. So, um, okay, let's get into it. Let's get into it. I can't even tell you what the weather is Friday because it's not Friday and I'm not going to give you fake weather. No way. No fake meteorology. When that starts happening, God help us all. So, got to get stuck into a couple of shows that uh, I've been watching that uh, have been on Foxtel here in Australia, but that you can catch on HBO in the US and the UK, uh, both HBO projects. And one of them is Quiz. Quiz is an amazing, amazing three-part show, three one-hours, that uh, is directed by Stephen Frears. Stephen Frears, one of my favorite directors, he did The Queen, uh, My Beautiful Lingerette, High Fidelity. And Quiz is the retelling of the 2001 story where an army major, uh, Major Charles Ingram, and his wife, Diana, uh, won the million dollars on, or sorry, million pounds. Let's add a bit more money to that one. A million pounds on Britain's inaugural Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which was Celador's amazing hit show that's been franchised, uh, formatted around around the world, and is quite popular here in Australia with the indomitable Eddie McGuire. Now, in that first season, Charles Ingram, the major, played by Matthew McFadden. Matthew McFadden, who plays Tom Wamsgam on Succession. Succession is my absolute favorite, hands down, no contest TV series in the world right now, and can't wait for series three, which has been delayed because of the Wu flu. Thanks, China. Uh, Matthew McFadden, who I didn't know was English before this also. And uh, he's been in a couple of great shows that I've seen. And I thought, wow, what a great English accent he has. But he's actually English and he has such a great American accent in succession. So I stand educated here. We're always, we're always transparent here, except when we're not. Matthew McFadden plays Major Charles Ingram. And his wife is played by Sean Clifford and... Those of you that watch Fleabag would know her as sister. She's astonishing. And Michael Sheen, who has worked with Stephen Furs before, having played Tony Blair in, in The Queen, plays Chris Tarrant, who is the show host and very popular show host in Britain. And it's a true story. A couple of things have been uh, fictionalized, so to speak, but the true story of how his answers, Major Ingram's answers were peppered by coughs, like, in the background of the audience, such to the point that the show's creators, Celador, felt that the coughs were signals that he had the right answer or the wrong answer and needed to change an answer and that it was fixed. And in short, I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but it tells an amazing story of not only how who wants to be a millionaire was created, which is brilliant on its own, uh, and goes into the backstory of ITV and the creators of Celador and their inspiration and their perspiration and how things started, but also the very, very difficult emotion when someone thinks they're being cheated or someone thinks they're being stolen from when, in effect, they might not be. So... It's, it's quite prescient in the time right now with call-outs and false accusations and 
and guilt and, of course, Britain, which was one of the first countries to do trial by media uh, straight away, going going way back into the, uh, you know, 60s and uh, 70s and 80s and the 90s with uh, Michael Hutchinson, um, Paula Yates, and the Brits are phenomenal for that, and that's not a good thing. Um, it's an amazing three hours. I didn't want it to end. Absolutely didn't want it to end. So it goes all the way into the trial and has the flashbacks. And you see how they got so obsessed with this show and how the major who really didn't want to go on the show in the first place was drawn into it. It's really a must watch. Now, also a sister production of HBO. And please don't say HBO. If you say HBO, you're not speaking proper English. There is no H in the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Now, I do hear kids saying H from time to time. And even if they're kids I don't even know, I see them at McDonald's talking, I go over to them and correct them, even in front of their parents, which doesn't always end up well. Um, but ends up better than telling a child that maybe he shouldn't be eating McDonald's because he's too fat, which... I did many years ago at a McDonald's, um, and that ended very badly, too. That'll be a great story to tell in a future podcast. And uh, how uh, nutritional advice to strangers is best not, best not used. Um, you try and do a good thing. You think you're doing a good thing. And no, you think, wow, what was I thinking? What the hell was I thinking? Uh, and that comes from me having been a fat child. So I thought, I'll save this kid 20 years of agony being picked on. And uh, give him some nutritional advice. I think actually he listened. Regrettably, his mother didn't. So, and that was at the McDonald's on Burke Street in Melbourne. In case they're listening right now. Sorry. Sorry. Apology. But no reparations. Anyway, um, HBO's project that I want to share with you is McMillions. And McMillions covers another cheating scandal, which took place between 1989 and 2001, when McDonald's hamburgers had their Monopoly contests. Now, we've all played Monopoly. Actually, if you've never played Monopoly, please email me because um, I want to study you. But uh, Monopoly, one of the most popular board games in the world, developed by Parker Brothers during the Great Depression in uh, 1929, I believe. Um, the show is executive produced by Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, who, if you remember Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, who could have believed that he is one of the most successful and amazing actors today and a very powerful, very powerful uh, executive producer. In fact, he's in one of Hollywood's 100 most powerful producers in uh, last, I think it was November or December's variety when they go through who has the power in Hollywood. And it's amazing too, a great little story about Marky Mark. When he was cast with Jack Nicholson and Matt Damon in Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Now, interestingly, um, and Zach Scharf reports on IndieWire, Wahlberg's supporting turn in The Departed earned him his first and only acting Oscar nomination. However, Wahlberg had no intention of doing it. He had literally um, cursed his way to the no nomination. Wahlberg didn't want to do the show. And The Departed was so interesting because Wahlberg had said, 
he wasn't committed to making a movie uh, and making any movie with Martin Scorsese, especially playing second fiddle to Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Nicholson does. He just, um, that's not ego. That's that's focus and, and dedication. Mark Wahlberg was always going to be a number one from day one, although some people would say, hey, you don't want to play support to Leonardo DiCaprio, um, Matt Damon, you know, Jack, whatever. Anyway, so Martin Scorsese, Marty, called him up and and was so excited about making the movie. I can see, listen, we're going to do this movie and it's going to be amazing. You're going to work with Jack Nicholson. It's, it's going to be great. We're going to shoot around New York and Boston, stuff like that. And Wahlberg said, no, I'm not doing the movie. He wanted a different part and he wanted some other different things. He had talked about doing it for a long time, but no, he wasn't going to do it. So Wahlberg remembered Scorsese reacting to his rejection of the film by staying silent for a minute and then just going, okay. So it took like, Six seconds for Wahlberg's agent to call back and chastise him for turning down an icon like Scorsese. What the fuck? Wahlberg said his agent just asked him, just go talk to Scorsese now. If if you were an agent, you would be freaking out. So despite Wahlberg's resistance, Scorsese and the actor's agent knew the part was right choice. And they figured out a plan to get Wahlberg to see it for himself. They sent him on a plane to Marty's office. He read the script again, but he was still pretty angry. And, uh... Wahlberg said he wasn't going to do it. And then Marty said, listen, look at, the, look at this part. Look at what you get to do with all these people. And he knew that Wahlberg was from Boston. He knew the Boston world and talked about improvising. And then he told Wahlberg, dude, you're free to do whatever you want to do. So of course, so Scorsese giving Wahlberg the blessing of improvisation gave him the confidence to finally accept the role. And ironically, as I said, uh, it gave him the best reviews of his career and his first and only acting nomination to date. Anyway, but back to McMillions. McMillions, for many of you that do not know, was a complete scam from the beginning because there was no way for the million-dollar winner to win unless you had the special ticket. And there was a gentleman that made the special ticket a little bit harder to find. So you could win, you know, 50,000, you could win a car, you could win all these things, but the only people that won the million had a little bit of an advantage. Now that's the only spoiler that I'm going to tell you and that that's essential for you to know what it's all about otherwise, you know, who would care about a McDonald's board game, you know, right now. But everyone's played that game. I even played it. I collected a couple of pieces. I think I won some free fries, which is always nice. Um especially when you've just bought the fries, you peel it off and you've won fries. And then the big quandary is, do you go back to the counter and have that second fries when you're already full? Or do you save it for another time? Except those little tickets were half the size of a postage stamp. So if you stuck it in your car and then you went to the car wash and it got vacuumed up or thrown out and you come back to the car and think, oh, I think I'll have some fries. Fuck! You can't find that fries ticket. It drives you mental. So it's always best to eat just, just go in and eat them straight away. So... Anyway, McMillions is six episodes, each one hour long, and it has some amazing twists and turns. And the coolest thing is somehow, I have no idea how, the producers got the original FBI agents and the original district attorney and and all the original people that were involved in it, good and bad, assembled for this documentary. I have no 
idea how they did that. I would like to see a documentary just on how they cast it. But there's the original FBI agent who's serendipitously, who's serendipitously, I always have a problem with that word at the beginning, serendipitously. I serendipitously need to take a serendipitous, serendipitous pronunciation class at a serendipitous time in a serendipitous place, serendipitously. Don't you think? The FBI agent who serendipitously gets turned on the track, hot on the trail, to what would be, you know what, a McDonald's scam versus, you know, solving the 9-11 hijackers case or something like that. And that's quite interesting, too, because this takes place from 1989, culminating in 2001, around the time of 9-11. So it's, a, it's an amazing show. And you see the, the difference in these people from their age now and what happened and how they got drawn in. And uh, it's amazing. It's uh, I use uh, some people think I overuse the word amazing, which is amazing in itself. But uh, it's absolute top level f- filmmaking. And um, think Baby Jesus for the streamers like HBO and you know Amazon and Apple Plus and uh, things like that, which which make this po- possible. By the way, uh, in a future episode, maybe even next week, I'll be talking about the Morning Wars on Apple Plus, which I've suddenly started watching the uh, Jennifer Aniston vehicle, which is quite impressive too. So those are two absolute must-see, must-see. And those will give you entertainment because in the next month or two, you're going to be bombarded with two other pieces of news uh, that are also entertainment in their own. And that is Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey, the late Jeffrey Epstein's uh, girlfriend, consort, pimp, manager, uh, whatever you want to call her, was arrested in New Hampshire, hiding in New Hampshire. L- let me tell you, I don't think there's anyone in New Hampshire that has all their toes, let alone wears high heels. So I can't believe how long it took to spot her in New Hampshire, um, which the only difference between New Hampshire and Vermont Vermont has Ben and Jerry's, which used to be good ice cream until they got TDS. Now, she's going to be all over the news because this week, this week on the 14th, uh, which is after this pre-record, but before my actual podcast release on the 17th. So, hmm, maybe I'll have to update this then. We'll see if there's any news. She's going to be in uh, a proffered meeting, which is kind of the... Some people say the Queen for a Day meeting with the all the federal agencies and the district attorney where they sit down with her and she can say anything she wants with impunity and without a charge. So she can say, okay, I will give you all of this and this and this and this. I'll give you this guy and this guy and all of this if you give me total immunity and let me go. So it's kind of like ask anything, give us all your wishes. And then they'll sit down and they'll tick off, well, that's okay, and that's okay. Um, But we're really not interested in that. We're a little more interested in Randy Andy, Prince Andrew. We're a bit more interested in why Bill Clinton was alleged to, uh, and by alleged, his name was on the flight logs, which the Transportation Authority doesn't forge, on the flight logs down to Epstein's Island 13 to 17 times, but he denies ever having been there. Interesting. her relationship with President Trump, relationship with all kinds of top folks. And so they, they're going to want the big names. They're going to want the big names. They're not going to want any uh, 
riffraff. So they're also going to be keeping an eye on her so she doesn't mysteriously, you know, die in prison. But if she does, it'll make for a great documentary. Now, the other news, of course, is Kanye West announcing a presidential nomination, which I think is to, here's my theory on it, is to try and unite the black vote across the U.S. And then when he realizes he has no chance of winning or even really getting on the ticket this November, uh, unless he puts it off to 2024. But I think he's still trying for 2020. If he gets quite a bit of the black vote and then can't do anything with it, can't actually get on the ticket, is pass it on to one of the other parties. And one would assume, possibly, that would be the Republican Party because of his friendship with the president and his wife's friendship with the president. But we don't know, because traditionally, the Democrats think that they own the black vote. But history shows what they've done. Now, see, there's no rants here. It's just just laying it out for you. Now, one of the most amazing pieces of news, though, this week is just yesterday, the oldest aircraft in Qantas's fleet, the Gosford, which is a 747 VHOJM, the old style where they had first class in the nose and then segued it down to business class, premium economy and economy. QF Flight 73 went from Sydney to San Francisco and then hopped over to the Mojave Desert where it is parked awaiting its fate. It was commissioned in 1971. It's almost 50 years old. And Fleet Captain Owen Weaver was the first pilot on it and the last pilot on it. 50 years. Uh, it was like his baby all the way from Go the Woe. Very emotional, very emotional interview with the, the guy on the TV the other day, which I just caught the end of and, and, and read an article. And that leaves the last couple of 747s, which will be sent over on the 22nd of July. And then it's game over, according to Owen Weaver, who is the fleet captain. And there's been a lot of uh, special memorial flights at very expensive prices from Sydney and Canberra and stuff. So people can take that last 747 around Australia. Bit of history bit of history as all, all the new Dreamliners and 789s and all that stuff come out, even though we can't fly anywhere now. And interestingly enough, airline tickets. We got all this thing here, at least in Australia, where unbeknownst to me, lo and behold, if you asked me last week, how many people have come into Australia from overseas since the Wu flu lockdown? I would have said maybe 5,000 thinking I was way high, not, you know, way high, like, woo, but, you know, way high on my numbers. 70,000 people have come into Australia since then. No wonder we've got this virus happening all over the place. And how many of them been tested and quarantined? Like 11. Anyway, so to make a long story short, because if you look at the fine print on all your airline tickets, they have things embracing the Warsaw Convention in case you're caught in a war zone and things like that and blah, 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 ginger. If you ever read the back of your airline tickets, you, you would never fly. It's like reading the terms and conditions from Apple when you get a, you know, a song on iTunes or you know, Apple Music now. 
And then they say, have you read the term conditions? You click, of course, yeah. And then they go, have you really read the terms and conditions? Yeah, of course. No more lawsuits. So why not, why not, a very wise person suggested this to me, why not on the airline tickets have a conditional quarantine clause so that by purchasing this ticket, you realize that in the event of a pandemic or something like that, that you agree that upon landing back in Australia or wherever your place of origin could be, you know, for U.S. people, U.K. people, um, and the rest of the world, and rest of the world, hmm, there's about nine countries I consider the rest of the world, and then the rest is the rubbish tip. But uh, you agree an implied, implied warranty that if there's a pandemic, when you return home, that you will be taken directly from the plane. Do not pass go, do not stop, you know, no free parking, directly to a quarantine area for your 14 days, whatever they deem. And um, that that's part of the deal so that you just know it. Okay, pandemic, gotta home, you gotta get home, gotta go in the quarantine. So that way we don't have all these people coming into our countries and, you know, polluting them with your with your virus and whatever what else god knows what else you might find in there too uh 14 days 14 days sounds like a long time if you asked me that six months ago i would have gone get out of here but now after all these lockdowns and everything 14 days is a holiday 14 days is like you know camp herzl or camp lincoln that i had to do when i when i was a kid I don't know if I ever shared with you, but when I was a kid, when I was like nine, my parents took me down from Sioux City to Lake Hubert, Minnesota, which is like in the middle of nowhere. Even when you come from Sioux City and you go up into Minnesota, um, it's even nowhere more than nowhere. And they had actually packed me a suitcase. Now, I really didn't think of it at the time. But um, they said they were going to inspect the camp. We are going to inspect the camps. So we drove up from Sioux City to Minneapolis. It was like a four or five hour drive and had a nice lunch and then another hour on up to the camp. And then we pull up to this camp, Camp Lincoln, and we pull in and we pull into the desk. And, there, and that part is clear to me. And, and the rest is like, I suppose, having been on, been put on a train to Auschwitz when you were nine, you just block it out. Couldn't possibly even you know, recall the horror. But the my horror. parents just gave me the a kiss horror. and left me and skedaddled out of there with my little suitcase. They had actually conned me into thinking we were visiting a camp, but they left me at a camp. And then they went golfing for a week or two. I don't know if you remember Alan Sherman, Hello Mother, Hello Father. Here I am from Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. And I think that we'll have some fun when it stops raining. I don't know why that song still is in me, but I was put in a camp. I'd never been away from home before, let alone with, you know, Goyim and other kids of, you know, all backgrounds, uh, kids that I'd only seen on National Geographic. And it was horrible. Trying to swim across the lake. I couldn't fucking swim. I'd never learned how to swim. That didn't go well. Plus the lake was cold and had creatures in it. And um, I was chubby, so my stomach, you know, sat out over my swimsuit. So I, you know, was not svelte and uh, wasn't able to pick up hot chicks, which is important when you're nine, uh, or even be looked at anybody. I was nared. 
Nair is when kids come in and they hold you down and they put Nair all over your head. And of course, your hair falls out in patches. You look like some third-rate chemotherapy victim. Um, this is horrific stuff. And uh, I'll never forgive my parents for that. Ever. Ever. But then, a couple years later, they took me to a Jewish camp, Camp Herzl. I think that was up in Wisconsin. Locked that out. It also had a lake. It also had, you know, at least it was Jews. But then it was a kosher camp, so shocking food. Absolute. The difference between vegan food and kosher food, they both suck pretty much. Although kosher food, six points above vegan food, because um, at least there's some meat there. But then you couldn't have dairy with it. I could go into this. It's, it sounds very anti-Semitic, but it's Jew on Jew crime. It's okay. I've never kept kosher. And here we are 60 years later in Minnesota and Wisconsin are even worse than ever, looting and terrorists. This is so stream of consciousness, this show, because it's really not a Friday. I'm lost, absolutely lost. A couple of shout outs while I'm thinking of camps and places to go, because I can't go anywhere now. I'd even go to Camp Lincoln now if I could go to Camp Lincoln, hang out there, my wife and I. Go up to Camp Herzl, take her to a nice Jewish kids camp for a while, get the dress up. Shout out to our good friends at Tingarana in Nusa. We're dying to go to Tingarana. We've been dying to go there since this all happened. It's a favorite of ours up in Nusa. And if you're not from Australia and you're visiting Australia, a must is the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Queensland's a state where we're not allowed to visit. And Nusa is fantastic. And Tingarana is apartments on the beach, beautiful blue and white kind of art deco, mega stunning. Great pool right on the ocean. And uh, it's absolute paradise. And another place not far away, south, just south, just across the border into New South Wales. Can't go there either. Why? Because we're from Victoria. Is the Byron on Byron. The Byron and Byron used to be owned by Jerry Harvey of Harvey Norman Appliances. He's the, the appliances king here. Uh, but he recently sold it. I don't know who bought it. So I hope it's still as awesome as it was. But it borders both a beautiful rainforest and a beach on the other side. And it's just a few minutes from Byron Bay. Byron Bay used to be a bit too many hippies and tie-dyed people, um, you know, smoking pot that they picked up in Nimbin. You know, smoking pot is so 80s. So 80s. But uh, Byron Bay has turned out to be a very groovy place, a very almost a Hawaii type feel. In fact, it's on the same latitude, changes in attitude, changes in latitude, uh, same latitude as Maui and Hawaii. So it's kind of got that same resonance and vibe and connection. And if that seems a bit woo woo to you, then you're just not sensitive enough to appreciate these things. And you should holiday somewhere else. But uh, no, you know when you go someplace, you go, God, it's almost got a bit of a deja vu. Feel like you've been somewhere before. Maui in Hawaii, Byron Bay. There you go. And Bali, in a way. Bali has kind of that same vibe, except um, people that will blow you up uh, while you're in a nightclub, which generally doesn't happen in Honolulu or Byron, to the best of my knowledge. Speaking of people that will blow you up in a nightclub, I know that the um, uh, Recep, whatever his name is, the uh, high priest, dark overlord, president, prime minister of Turkey, is um, taking the much-revered 
Hagia Sophia, which has endured since the 6th century. That's uh, a President Erdogan, Recep Erdogan, which has outlasted the Byzantine Empire, my favorite empire, and the Ottoman era. Now, once again, the President Erdogan is converting it back to a mosque instead of a museum. But Turkish officials say Christian emblems, including mosaics of the Virgin Mary, which adorn its soaring golden dome, which I visited with my parents in 1967, will not be removed. So it's being converted back into a mosque. And everybody's up in arms. Oh, it's a museum. It's iconic. Everybody on both sides. My suggestion, why doesn't he just do the Disneyland thing and turn it into a theme park? Turn it into, you know, Allah World or something like that with the, you know, 16 virgins, the paradise ride. And, of course, the Ali Akbar ride, where anything can happen. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential there. And everybody could love it, and there'd be no more fighting. Because Disneyland is the happiest place on Earth. So why not take a clue from that? There, got to hear first. Now, something I'd like to share with you that I've been enjoying all week is an amazing uh, amazing is not even the word. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I told you about the greatest ice cream in history? Well, this could be among the top five chocolates I've ever had in my life. And I'm 67 years old now, and I've had a lot of chocolate. This is the Monsieur Truff Hazelnut Guyanduja Milk Chocolate. And this is made by Monsieur Truff. I thought it was Monsieur Truffle. I, I, in fact, for years, I thought it was Monsieur Truffle because I never really looked closely, but it's Monsieur Truff. And, oh my God, this stuff is so amazing. Let me just open this wrapper here. Uh, it's very expensive. We bought it at Leaf in Elwood, um, where Neon Leon operates the most amazing store there. And listen to this. Hazelnuts, organic sugar, cacao powder, whole milk powder, Da, 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 da. But most importantly, you, do, you can't tell by just talking about the ingredients. This high-quality product is made by crushing Italian hazelnuts until a smooth paste, combining it with creamy organic milk chocolate and finishing with whole hazelnuts. All of their hazelnuts are of the, quote, Tanda Centile Trilobato variety, which are especially valued and registered with the Italian Chamber of Commerce. Fuck me. I didn't even know there was, you know, these major hazelnuts. I know that some types of marble, like Traventino marble and certain things, are registered with the Italian Chamber of Commerce. The Richard Meyer-designed Getty Center in Los Angeles has a special Italian signature registered Traventino marble. From this one quarry that's the only place in the world you can get it. But I didn't know that there was this Rolls-Royce of hazelnut. Now, let me tell you. I wouldn't put this on paste, kind of. Like, that's a little bit like um, Nutella, which is a chocolate hazelnut thing, which Nutella is great. Nutella is great. It's kind of the McDonald's of that type of thing. It's a great, it's a great taste of dessert, but it's, um, it's for the masses. This, not that there's anything wrong with the masses, as long as they're not allowed to vote or be on social media. But this is the Rolls-Royce Bee's Knees hazelnut chocolate. And I got to tell you, you know, don't pay your rent or your mortgage one week. Just buy this chocolate. It'll change your life. Big shout out to them. 
By the way, I remember when they uh, actually opened. They opened in 2006 at the Paran Market. They're a Brunswick, Victoria-based company, little factory warehouse in the back of someone's house and basement back then, and then expanded. They started in Paran Market, and I bought one of the bars, and I thought, God, that's a bit expensive. But the guy behind the counter said, you got to try this. And uh, he got me hooked. It was a gateway drug. And uh, no, no turning back now. Now, well, you're talking about chocolate. What goes with chocolate? Fine red wine. And this week, what we drank last night, and by last night, was last night. So it's not the last night before the podcast, but it's the last night before the pre-recorded part of the podcast. So you kind of got to go with me in this parallel universe of, you know, wine and chocolate. Actually, I'll keep drinking it all week and eating it all week. But Port Phillip Estate 2018 Pinot Noir from Red Hill. Now, confession, I've actually never been to the Port Phillip Estate. My wife and I have booked there a couple of times to go there for lunch and something's come up. Someone's either gotten sick or... Um, there was the Wu flu lockdown the first time. So we've never been there to visit, but there's supposed to be some astonishing architecture. It's only an hour, hour and a half from, from Melbourne. But their wine, their Pinot Noir, and it's reasonably priced. It's not outrageous. It's about 35 bucks a bottle, so it's not cheap. So it's kind of special occasion bottle here, and that's Australian dollars, so that's about 20 US. Is amazing. It's just amazing. And... Uh, we had some beautiful homemade lasagna last night. And I do extol the virtues of my wife's cooking, as well as sometimes my own, although I'm more of an apprentice. But she makes a lasagna that is to die for. In fact, if you had her lasagna and then you got woo flu and died, you could say her lasagna was truly the die fuller. So you could, you know, encompass all of the world's notions in, in one right now. But best not to do that. In fact, we even wore our masks on our walk this morning. Not so much because I felt I needed to wear a mask, but it makes everybody feel better. So um, I can be very malleable and comply, and comply. So pick up that chocolate, pick up that wine. Can't have any of my wife's lasagna, but uh, that'll get you through. Now, speaking of my wife, I do want to ham-handedly segue onto some, uh, something right out of left field, some retail shopping. And uh, you're thinking, oh, is, is this the... What is your podcaster wearing segment? No, you know that's later in the podcast. You know it is. You should know this by heart by now. You should get into the rhythm of things. And if you don't, it means you're new to the podcast. And I, I don't have a problem with you starting in late chapters, but I would hope that you would go back to the beginning and come on the journey all the way with us. So it's, it's kind of like you're halfway in the flight and uh, you haven't experienced takeoff and, you know, pre-flight drinks and uh, ordering from the menu and, you know, getting the pajamas and stuff like that that you get in first class or business class. Oh, what? You have no pajamas? Oh, sad. So sad. You're in economy. So see, go back to the beginning and that way you can ride here on this story in business class. Anyway, retail shopping, I suppose that's a bit of a tautological statement, but you know I enjoy shopping. My wife enjoys shopping. We also know that there's good in it because every time here in Australia that we buy anything, um, whether it's, you know, clothing, shoes, some some foods, candy, things like that, you're, you're paying GST, a goods and service tax, which is 10%, which is adding to the economy. And all of that money, of course, is being given out as 
JobKeeper, and other assistance to people who need it right now because there is no business. However, that's not what this is about. We were walking the other day, and you know that my wife and I take a lovely walk on the beach somewhere about an hour, an hour and a half, and we were talking about people who do love to buy clothes and actually hide them from their partners. Now, that, that would be impossible to do in our house. Well, it's mainly because, one, we love to shop together. We'll go to the city together or a high street or, or, or literally high street or Chadston or, or someplace. We just love to shop together. Uh, it's um, part of our Venn diagram of synchronicity. And so we don't ever really get any opportunity to buy something and hide it. But it did get me thinking while I was on the walk. It did get me thinking because I know that we both know there are people that, that do hide things from their partners. What goes through someone's mind when they go buy an item and hide it? What What is the mechanics and the psychology of it? Um, is, is it a thrill for them? Um, is it something I could do? Uh, you know, something, because I've never done it. I wonder how I'd feel. Would it be, you know, uh, you know, like scoring something illicit like in the past? Would would she notice? Well, I went through that in my head. Of course, of course she would notice. I could hide it for a while, but where would I hide it? Would I hide it in the front boot of my car, the rear boot of my car? I have a two-seater, the Porsche and uh, the Boxster. And so... I don't have a back seat, so I couldn't just throw it behind the back seat. You know, I thought maybe I should give this a go. So, you know, it actually walked through the whole psychology of it. And um, I just, I got quite excited about it, thinking what I would get and what I would hide. And then I thought, no, this just, this just didn't, wouldn't work. And, uh, you know, and even if I actually had the guts to go out and 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 do that and, and buy something, I'd probably have to bring it back. And then that would be horrific because usually... I can make some pretty bad purchases and get home and uh, in the past, and they, they wouldn't work. That's why we like to shop together, because you can say, that looks great on you, buy it, or you look like an idiot. Now, I have a question for you, and it's not a rhetorical question, it's really a question, so you can write me at bobby at Apex Feline, or comment on any of the social media sites where you see the podcast, but I have noticed... I have noticed, and I am perplexed. It's winter here, though it's cold in Melbourne. Not like cold in Chicago in winter or, you know, Antarctica, but it gets cold. It gets down to zero. And so, obviously, the cows are out in the cold. So the milk from the cows must be created at a cooler temperature, one would assume. And I have noticed that when I make my coffees in the morning and I have an espresso machine made by DeLonghi, it's quite a nice espresso machine, not one of those, you know, with six steamer things, things you see at a cappuccino bar or, you know, nine outlets made in Italy that you see at, you know, some wanker's house that has no fucking idea how to make coffee. It just looks good, which is fine. I'm all into that. I, I, uh, I, I am a poser. So I would love one of those if I had the house to, you know, display it. But it's just a lovely espresso cappuccino machine that it makes the froth, the, the foam with the milk. And in the winter, the milk is so much thicker. It's, it's radically different. It's like 50% more frothy and foamy. It's almost like cream when it comes out. And I've noticed this from milk generally 
and June and July and August. Now, I'm wondering if anyone else around the world has noticed that in their winter, and I know in the Northern Hemisphere you're in summer right now, um, perhaps you're having worse milk in summer. I know in summer the milk can be quite bubbly and kind of thin, so maybe the cows are just sweating and overheated and um, it's, you know, sweaty milk. Maybe the cows are out there in the field and it's just boiling and going, fuck, it's hot, Jesus. Can't wait till winter. So let me know. Let me know your feedback on this. Now, by the way, one thing just kind of popped into my head. Um, I was talking about Mark Wahlberg, Marky Mark, earlier, um, and The Departed, which takes place in Boston. In Boston, Did you know that Boston, for you Americans, and for those of you that don't know, Boston is on the east coast of America, and Boston is very, very much laid out like city, Sydney, with its uh, harbor. It's a beautiful city. Uh, Boston is the third most intensely gentrified city in the U.S., and that's according to a new report. Behind only San Francisco, which topped the ratings in Denver, Colorado, researchers from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, which is an economic justice nonprofit in Washington, D.C., examined more than 72,000 census tracts or neighborhoods for signs of gentrification between 2013 and 2017. And the San Francisco-Oakland metro area led the list with the highest proportion of gentrifying neighborhoods followed by Denver, Boston, Miami, and New Orleans. And to meet the criteria for gentrification in this study, the neighborhoods must have experienced dramatic increases in median home values and college educational attainment. Now, Generally speaking, when you see gentrification, it goes hand in hand with displacement where low to moderate income families, especially renters, are often pushed out and they have to move to other low income areas. That's the kind of threat we see when those families are generally not going to get the benefits that come along with economic revitalization. Now, the other end of the coin there is there is a series of bills in the U.S. Congress right now, um, including ones led by Cory Booker, that are trying to get large cities to annex suburbs. Now, the reason they're wanting to do that is that a lot of people move out to the suburbs because either they do get displaced or maybe they just want to go out to the suburbs. They grow up in the cities, um, hard scrabble areas, tough areas, and, they, and you know, this is my generation. They've grown up, work hard, save some money, and they think they want to buy a nice house out in the suburbs where they don't have to deal with city traffic and just retire and have a nice life and stuff like that. So they want to get away from crime. They want to get away from a lot of traffic. They want to get away from, you know, just have a lot of space out there and, and live with people that they want to live with. And in the ensuing weeks and podcasts, I'm going to go into showing you why these are being re-annexed and rezoned and how it's affected by the lack of federal funding that will come their way for highways unless they turn a different direction, which will change the whole broad base of how these cities look and change the way the Electoral College looks. And that is what U.S. elections are all about. So we'll get into that diabolical little thing in the next couple of weeks. But speaking of cities and gentrification, one of the cities that um, has remained quite static over 50 years with very few changes, but insanely rising property values and also growth limitations and height limitations 
until late has been Boulder, Colorado, where I attended university beginning in the autumn of 1971. And I did promise last week I would say that I would share a story that is is, is quite bizarre. And in uh, today's cancel culture, I guess I could have almost been accused of bullying in what was really quite an amazing university prank at the time. As you know from previous podcasts, I do like a good prank. I do like a good joke. I don't mind jokes played on me, but it's, it's always lighthearted, you know, like covering my late son with tons of bugs while he was sleeping when he was five years old, things like that. Um, so I've always had a sense of the zeitgeist of what's right and wrong, and always, of course, deferred to the wrong. But this is a cautionary tale, something you wouldn't try at home or at university ever again. Um, but uh, it's kind of the Friday confessional of something uh, that took place there. So govern yourselves accordingly. In the autumn of 1971, I didn't know much about what I wanted to do at university coming from a small town. I didn't know what classes I wanted to take or what to do. But I did know that I wanted to be in Williams Village, which was the high-rise, the brand-new high-rise dormitory, co-ed dormitory uh, in Colorado at the number one party school, according to Playboy magazine, 1971. And um, it was pretty groovy. And I uh, had a cool roommate, and there were lots of great people on the floor. And what was interesting is there was one fellow named Alfred Chang that uh, was an exchange student from China. And Alfred had a room to himself, which was very unusual. Most of us had to share a room, so we were all a little bit jealous. He was very studious and didn't partake in other things like hall golf and many of the other things like putting Vaseline on the wheelchair ramps. Wheelchair ramps were a nouveau innovation uh, in 1971. Boulder was way ahead of the curve on environment. Of course, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCARV, was there, where Woody Allen's um, 1973 film Sleeper was shot. And Boulder was a microcosm of many things with Timothy Leary, uh, practiced and studied there and developed acid along with Dr. Albert Hoffman after he had left Harvard. And it was just an amazing place. Ram Dass was there for a while, and many of uh, alternative therapies and religions and everything were based out of Boulder, or at least centered in Boulder in a while. So it was a, a very spiritual and effusive place to study. Studying wasn't high on my list. Skiing was. Nevertheless, in the dorm, we were always playing and pranking and things like that. And we were concerned that Alfred wouldn't take part in any of this. Uh, Alfred would stay in his room almost all the time, except for during class. And so the rest of the time, he would study. And this didn't bode well with the community spirit that we had there. So um, Jeff Chesterfield and Steve Barston, who uh, were on my floor and my roommate respectively, thought it would be interesting to see what type of sense of humor that Alfred had. And especially being in a high rise, we were on the ninth floor. So I found out from a gentleman named Alan Myers at a poker game that you could penny people in. Now, pennying people in is where you take pennies which are small U.S. coins, and you jam them into the space between the door jam and the lock, and you push them in there, and then you take a hammer or a wedge and you jam them in so there is so much pressure against the door jam that you can't turn the door lock or the door handle. You are literally pennied in. Nickels were 
too thick, dimes were too small and hard to handle. So one night, while Alfred was in his room studying, we pushed some pennies in, pushed on the door as hard as we can, jammed them in, make sure nothing would turn. And then we waited about five minutes, and using a blowtorch that had been borrowed from the metallurgy lab, we started heating the outside of his door handle, knowing that the inside of his door handle would be quite warm after a while. We also lit cigarettes, blew smoke under his door, and crackled cellophane so that it quite sounded like fire was crackling out there and smoke started billowing in his room. After a while, we started screaming, fire, 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 and banging on his door, banging on Alfred's door. Now, it did occur to us, fortunately, that being on the ninth floor and being that there were windows that opened all the way, unlike safety windows of today, that one in a million that Alfred could maybe take this too seriously, not know we were kidding and open his window and jump out, which would uh, certainly end in, in grave physical damage, possibly death, and worse than that, we'd be expelled from the university and have to face our parents while his corpse would be sent back to China. Nevertheless, the prank worked quite well. We banged on the door, we screamed, we yelled, fire, 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 and we could hear him running over. He could hear the footsteps running over to the door where he would grab the door handle, which was piping hot from having used the blowtorch on our side of the hall. And you could hear him go, ah, ah, go, oh, oh, Alfred, you got to get out. You got to get out. And just as we were about to say, just kidding, just kidding, we heard the window opening in his room. And it appeared he was going to jump out the window. But fortunately, fortunately, Debbie Merskin, Debbie Merskin was one of the boys in 1971, was down there at the bottom of the entrance looking up just to make sure. And she was able to wave off Alfred, who was already on the windowsill and ready to jump, completely convinced that the dormitory was on fire and it was the only way to save his life. That was a close one, as we like to say. She yelled, they're just kidding, they're just kidding. And we yelled, there's no fire, there's no fire. And we took the screwdriver, unpennied the door, and pushed it open, um, hurting our hands because we'd forgotten how hot that the door handle had been on our side. Well, Alfred did not think it was funny. And in fact, the next day, Alfred was gone. His room was cleaned out. And he had transferred and gone to another university. We know not where. Perhaps back to China. Who knows? Maybe the Harvard. We never heard or saw from him again. Also, disciplinary action came in quite quickly. And I was asked to leave the dorm with my two compatriots, and I was sent to a low-rise, all-male dorm called Willard Hall on the other side of campus, which was lovely because that's where I met my best friend and longtime friend, Will Porter, and a fantastic roommate from Chicago named John Yowell called Hawkeye. Don't know what's happened to him either. We're in the fall of 1971. It was simply a close encounter with a foreign student. I don't know where Alfred is today. I hope he's well, and I hope he's an expert in pyrotechnics. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Well, what is your podcaster wearing today? Well, as I said, it's been a runaround, changing the wallpaper kind of day, cold, running in and out. And uh, I've got the black boss jeans on. They're very tight, so I feel like 
a young person, a groovy rock star, which uh, was always a fantasy, and uh, also a coordinating black Fendi sweater, which is one of my absolute favorites, and my black Gucci boots. I've gone full black, full, you know, Trent Reznor, full Johnny Cash, and brought out the Bon Mimusier Riviera watch, which is... Uh, made in 1973. It was actually one of the first steel watches and the Baume and Mercier brand started back in 1820 with the two brothers um, who took on a third partner, Paul Mercier, in 1920. A little bit good to know. I absolutely love watches. I'm a bit obsessed with watches. It's one of the few things that's still made with apprenticeships and training and sometimes the same person working on them um, for days or weeks or months. And... Uh, we will change them up from time to time. I've been very blessed to uh, have a nice little collection. And this one I bought at Watches of Switzerland on Collins Street, which is um, fantastic service, fantastic people. Also wearing my dad's Masonic ring, which has the diamond in it that uh, he had given my mom when they got engaged. And then later on, when uh, the depression ended and life was a bit better, gave her a nicer ring. And he put that stone and his Masonic ring, so it makes me think of him this week. Now, back onto the U.S. a little And with the exception of my English friends, who now everything has to suddenly reopen. The pubs have opened, and the cinemas opened, everything like that. The cinemas are closed in the U.S. by and large, and AMC Cinemas is suing the state of New Jersey, as I flagged last week, and there's going to be a nationwide lawsuit saying that the state has unconstitutionally deprive them of their income so that the state has no right to permit a chain that operates nationally from operating and gaining income. Now, we know that America is a bit litigious, so to speak, and um, that is going to bleed down just about everywhere and really come down here because I have seen some online articles from some of the Big cinema owners here in Australia, independent and chain-wise, that are monitoring that very closely. Now, do they have the right to open their cinemas? That's hard to say. I think they do. Would people go to the cinema if they were open? Well, people that are very safety conscious and have pandemic fear probably wouldn't. Those that don't probably would. So that question is, do businesses have the right to be open. That's a question, well, right now in Australia, they don't, or in Victoria, they don't. But that is an interesting question as time goes on, f flagging that. Uh, last week, I would have gone to a cinema in a heartbeat. I was really looking forward to seeing Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan film, but uh, who knows when we'll see that. But uh, just planting that seed out there that uh, as time goes by, people will want to do what they can to save their business, whether it's right or wrong. And uh, interesting, interesting observation. What fascinates me is that the uh, U.S. chain, and I think it's going to bleed over to national restaurant chains and other things like that, their, their uh, case is because they are in all 50 states or many states, and so they are governed by federal rules like franchising and chains and stuff like that so that they would be secondarily governed by state rules in the U.S. and so that they could evade the state rule because of federal regulations. It's just interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the law of it, not really trying to 
tell everybody to open up and, you know, go get sick or do whatever. Just fascinated by that. Now, um, just a couple of last shout-outs here. Uh, as Mercury goes direct, by the way, those of you that have known it's been Mercury retrograde, those mystic Medusa followers are going to see things swooping ahead, and, and now it's a good time to sign contracts and do business again, if you've got a business. Um, Su Ling Hui, who's a longtime friend on Facebook, who always has the best food photos and the best recipes and, and groovy things on, on Facebook, uh, she's good to follow. And an old-time friend and client, Chrissy Moffat, who uh, is a great creator. The Crosby Street Hotel in New York opens again this week. That's one of my wife and my favorite, part of the Firmdale chain. The uh, Regrettably, the Claridge's in London will not be opening until at least September, they shared. So uh, not that we can leave. Not that we can leave. And The Block. The Block, Channel 9's. TV series based on real estate, which is massive here in Australia. I've shot it out a few times. They have pretty much completed. We walk up and down past it uh, every day on our, our morning walk. It uh, is a bunch of retro, like 1910, 1920s homes that were brought in, five of them, and the facades were kept and then modern homes built behind them. There was a lot of naysayers here in Brighton. A lot of people going, eh, it's going to spoil the look of the neighborhood, mate. And, uh, you know, people sometimes in Brighton just don't want things to be changed. They just like it the way it is, like the beach boxes. Um, but they look amazing, to use one of my favorite words. They look epic. And it is an absolute gem and a gift to the neighborhood. So uh, I hope they do well. I hope they do well. Can't wait to see the show, which is probably still a few months away. And uh, also just a reminder to check in the episode one and two, especially those of you that are in lockdown now, and revisit the dinner party, those of you that are creatives. It's still the best exercise in the world for visualization and getting goals and getting answers. Um, if you're not a creative, you can just ignore that. Thanks for coming this far. And just one last note, the, the duality of man, the good versus evil. My wife and I were walking at Albert Park the other day, which is a beautiful park around the lake, and walking around. We were actually wearing our masks. We were trying to wear these masks. Not that we have to, but we gave it a try. It was like being slowly suffocated and waterboarded for an hour and a quarter. It was so hard to breathe by the time we got around. But um, we gave it a try. We were, we're working our way through that one with uh, ver various varieties of, of masks. But uh, I saw something that I'd never seen before. We're walking, and two people passed us quite, quite fast. We walk at a good pace. We're fit. And uh, they had, uh, like, fluoro bibs on, like construction workers type thing. And it said, blind athlete. I'd never seen that. And this guy was flying. And he was being tethered um, by another person, uh, a woman who was also quite athletic, and she was she had like a little um, a little tether that maybe was about four feet long, maybe a little over a meter, meter and a half, and uh, he held on one handle and she had the other, so she was leading him, but and they were really flying around, so obviously she's giving him exercise and he he's running, not sprinting, but 
putting up an amazing pace. And I thought that was amazing. And it uh, reminded me of the amazing story of the blind golfer, the uh, famous golfer named Joe Lazaro who uh, was a blind golf champion. He, he died at uh, age 95 a few years ago. But amazingly, way back in 1984, he was sitting at a table with Sam Sneed at a, a golf dinner, and they were talking about it. And um, Sneed said, it's amazing that you're blind and, you know, winning, you know, against mostly handicapped people. And I was a little bit, uh, it felt insulting. Lazaro said, well, you know what? Um... I'd like to play against you. And, and Sam Snead, one of the greatest golfers of all time. Sam Snead, who won the 1950 Open against um, the legendary Ben Hogan, who had had a near-fatal car crash with a bus in 1949, but came back to tie Snead in the U.S. Open in 1950, only to lose the playoff and sudden death. In fact, I always love the story of Ben Hogan. Talk about overcoming adversity. He was so destroyed, he, his, his pelvis was completely reassembled in the hospital. They said he'd never walk again, let alone play golf. The only thing he asked for was a golf club to be put in his hands, and he held on to that golf club the entire time he was in the hospital, making sure he was still familiar with it. Anyway, make a long story short, Sam Snead and Lazaro got into it, and Lazaro, the blind golfer, said, I am going to challenge you, and we're going to play, and we'll bet you can even name the golf course, Mr. Sneed, if I can name the time. Well, Sam Sneed said, well, let's play at my course in South Carolina. That's fine with me, said Lazaro. We'll play at midnight. And lo and behold, Mr. Lazaro, who was blind, won the round. Sam Sneed got his comeuppance. It's all about goal setting and knowing your advantage but what and that just inspired me about seeing that blind runner but another part of me just had come up and uh i just kind of thought well what what if they stop and take a break and uh you know the uh, person leading him you know has to take a phone call or go to the loo or the the bathroom or something like that and completely forgets about him you know what happens there or what happens, what happens if she's a real prankster and likes to run him into low branches and stuff like that? Would, would there be somebody like that? Am I just a bad person for thinking that? But I just think there's a tremendous, a tremendous skit there with this, this girl running this guy into the lake or into branches and things like that. I suppose that's not nice, but it does interest me. Um, and it's not being bad. It's just, that's just kind of what came to my head. I guess that's probably time to, to wrap it up before we'd even go... Any darker? I don't know. Who knows? So on that note, notice it was a rant-free podcast. It was all goodness. It was all light. Unicorns, cherries, and green apples. So I hope you have a fantastic week. And unless you hear from me again on this podcast in the next moment or two, it doesn't mean I didn't update it on Friday just to make sure everything is correct. So this could be the only pre-recorded one you hear. And uh, see, it's nice to be important out there, those of you that are important. And for me this week, it was most important to be nice. Ciao, ciao. Meow. <laughs>